Support for today's episode of Script Apart comes from ScreenCraft. Breaking into Hollywood as an aspiring writer can be a confusing, convoluted path. Fortunately, ScreenCraft are here to help writers with both the craft of writing and the business of Hollywood. ScreenCraft has everything for your writing journey, from video lectures by your favourite writers such as J.J. Abrams and Tony Gilroy, to a daily blog with amazing advice. It's also no secret that ScreenCraft have the best screenwriting competitions around. Hundreds of past winners and finalists have started their careers with the direct support of ScreenCraft. Netflix, Amazon, Apple TV+, Lionsgate, Universal, Blumhouse, Hulu. The list goes on and on of places that ScreenCraft winners have sold scripts to or have got staffed on shows at. So if you're an aspiring writer, don't wait to check out ScreenCraft at ScreenCraft.org today. Follow the link in today's show notes to find out more and get your writing dreams started. The subconscious fear at the base level of Sinister, when you break it down, is a parent's fear uh, that what their kids are watching will turn them into something evil. Uh, will do something wrong, that media is going to corrupt your children. That's something a lot of parents have a fear with. And we turn that into a movie. We turn that into media to corrupt their children with. Um, <laughs> and uh, that that was very much at the forefront of our mind while we were, were writing this. Welcome to Script Apart, a podcast about the first draft secrets of great movies. Each episode, a brilliant screenwriter revisits their initial screenplay for what became a beloved movie, discussing what changed, what didn't, and why, from first draft to the big screen. Today on the show, we're delighted to be joined by C. Robert Cargill, a screenwriter and novelist who in 2012 put a chill down the spine of audiences everywhere with a supernatural horror that was low in budget, but sky high in imagination. Sinister saw Ethan Hawke star as Ellison Oswalt, a washed-up true crime writer who goes to extreme lengths to reignite his career. After moving his wife and kids into the small-town home of a recently murdered family whose gruesome killing remains unsolved, he discovers in the attic a box. In this box are a collection of truly unsettling home videos that hint at a demonic conspiracy at play. As Ellison closes in on the truth, a terrifying entity closes in on him. The film put Cargill and frequent collaborator Scott Derrickson on a path towards bigger projects. A Marvel movie, 2016's Doctor Strange, soon followed. It's easy to see why they were suddenly in demand. Sinister is a brutally effective masterclass in horror filmmaking that shows the power of a screenwriting philosophy that Cargill swears by. The key to telling an engaging horror tale, he explains, is to write a gripping, grounded drama that's then gatecrashed by a supernatural other. In this episode, we delve into that philosophy as well as the origins of the film's Babylonian deity antagonist, Bagul the Eater of Children. We also talk about all the ways that Sinister evolved en route to the big screen. For example, did you know that Sinister was originally titled Super 8 before J.J. Abrams got there first, and that it presented Bagul as a fucked up Willy Wonka, as Cargill puts it. Before we dive in, a quick shout out to our brand new Script Apart magazine, which if you've listened to recent episodes, you'll know is a 51 page, beautifully designed collection of exclusive interviews and written versions of our most popular episodes to date. It's available through our Patreon page, where for the price of a single monthly cup of coffee, you can help the show continue to grow and produce episodes. You can also ask guests questions of your own, as you'll hear on today's episode. Not a bad deal if you ask me. Okay, with no further ado, let's get into my conversation with the brilliant C. Robert Cargill. Thank you to our Patreon supporters, that includes Mark Cave and Henry Vallow. You're listening to Script Apart, hosted by me, Al Horner, produced by Camille Demeck. 
Okay, here to talk about Bagul, the Eater of Children, it's Cargill, the writer of screenplays. How are you doing today, Cargill? I'm doing great. How about yourselves? All good here. Yeah, excited to chat about this genuinely terrifying film that's honestly no less chilling today than it was in 2012. Sinister was by no means the beginning of your writing career, but it was a springboard for you into all sorts of great projects from Marvel's Doctor Strange to some awesome new projects that hopefully we'll have a bit of time to talk about later. First, though, Sinister, what is your relationship with this movie today, almost a decade on? Um, I mean, uh, it's uh, very near and dear to my heart. It's uh, um, it's one of those crazy things where, you know, the the position that that I was in went, and to go and make the movie and the same with Scott. It was one of those things that we just both kind of agreed to one another. We're like, hey, I, you know, this might be the only movie I get to make. And, and Scott was of the opinion that it might be the last movie he got to make. And so let's leave it all out on the field. Let's just go and make the movie we want to make. And uh, if people don't dig it, then they don't dig us. And we accept that and we move on with our lives. And so we wrote that script and we made that movie and we were really proud of it. And then it did very well. Um, and but what has really been interesting is watching how it grows over the years. I mean, this is something I've written about, like before I made films. It's just an, in it's an endemic part of horror is that horror ages better than any other genre. There is no genre that ages like horror. Um, you know, bad horror becomes fun. Fun horror becomes considered good. Good horror becomes great and great horror uh, becomes legendary films. Uh, films that were slagged on their opening by critics, just savaged films that made bombed at the box office. I'll, I'll name two, um, The Shining and The Thing, uh, go on to become considered some of the, not only the best horror movies of all time, but some of the best movies of all time. People reassess horror in a way we do not reassess other uh, genres. And uh, as a result, uh, Sinister, which got good reviews at the time, you know, we I think we ended up at like 63, 64 percent on Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, the, you know, the genre critics liked it. Uh, we were considered the number three horror movie of uh, 2012. Um, if you seriously, this is a weird thing. If you Google the top 10 horror films of uh, uh, 2012, you will find a weird phenomenon. Every single list does the same thing. Number one is Cabin in the Woods. Number two is some film, they horror film they saw at a festival. And number three is Sinister. Um, so uh, we were, so I, for years, I was joking, we're the number three horror film of 2012. Uh, and, uh, and, but people would, for years, would approach me and just always tell me how that movie scared them and how that movie, um, you know, connected with them in a way, uh, you know, younger folks, it was their first real horror movie that scared the crap out of them. Older folks were like, I haven't been scared of a horror movie in years. Uh, one of my friends who's a horror filmmaker. She went home after the, the, the South by premiere of it and all the lights in her house were off. And she was just like, Nope, 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 no, I'm, I am not going in there. And that's when I knew, you know, that I had done something interesting. Um, but watching that over the years grow, um, uh, you know, it was like, great. You know, I have this movie. I have that film that horror fans will talk to me about in, in, in 10 years. Uh, but then when Forbes dropped their uh, uh, their article last summer uh, stating that Sinister had been proven scientifically to be the scariest film ever made, um, all of a sudden it was it, it, it just kind of changed because for four days on Twitter, everyone was arguing about it. Everyone had an opinion. And people kept asking me, what do you think about it? I'm like, well, you know, that's I mean, they tried to prove it objectively. I don't believe objective objectivity uh, is fair in this point. But the fact that we're in the conversation, the question is, is Sinister the scariest movie ever made? That's the win. 
The fact that people are even asking the question that some people do think it is and some people don't and have strong opinions on that. That's what you want with a film. You want people to be discussing it and arguing it and discussing and arguing it eight years after release is a huge win. So, I mean, the relationship with that film has just grown over time in that it's, you know, not only am I proud that this is my first film, my first thing out of the gate is is a film that is regarded like that. But um, to see people still engaging with this thing that I put so much passion into is the most satisfying part of the whole endeavor is just that people really have opinions on it. People revisit it, people reassess it um, and that people, you know, are still enjoying it. Um, you know, I, I make movies for people who work all week and on Friday or Saturday night, want to sit down with a six pack of beer or a pizza and some friends and want to have a good time, uh, and, uh, want, and, and don't want to have to shut their brain off when they do it. Uh, that's, you know, that's kind of my core philosophy and sinister has become a film like that. And so I'm very, very proud of it. I bet. Yeah. Um, so take me back to that Las Vegas bar where you pitched the idea to Scott. It's it's late. You were about five white Russians deep. What was the movie that you pitched him? Well, I mean, the thing. Yeah. So um, essentially, uh, me and Scott uh, were both in Vegas at the exact same time. I had never been. He was there for a poker tournament uh, uh, with his brother. And um, we just he just saw on Twitter that I was that I was there because I was, you know, chronicling my adventures. Uh, this was still way back in the social media day where you could talk about, hey, I'm at this place and I'm having this experience because you wouldn't have crazy stalkers show up or, you know, uh, w- weird experiences like that. Um, so he was like, oh, I'm in Vegas. You should we should get together. And so, yeah, we go to the Mandalay Bay. We're sitting in the bar. We're just talking movies um, and, you know, just having a good time. You know, I remember we had a long um uh, uh, spirited discussion on which version of Blade Runner is the, uh, is the proper version. Um, and, which is uh, it? I, I mean, there are five now. So, uh, <laughs> personally I do, I personally like, uh, the final version, the ultimate version, the ultimate cut. Yeah. Um, I, I, as a creative, I understand that I think it's not until after people dissected the film and realized and and thought that Deckard was a replicant that Ridley Scott bought into that. And like, yes, of course, that's what we meant the whole time. <laughs> and things evolved like that. And he recut the film to make that, which was the significantly better version of that movie, the proper version of the movie. And by adding that little orange flash in his eyes, you know, during that shot, that was Hey, that's great. That's the movie I want. And I like that. But I I actually find merit in all the versions. I actually like the theatrical because I like I like that hard boiled, disconnected uh, uh, Harrison Ford. I'm only here because I'm contractually obligated to read these lines <laughs> dialogue. I love that. Um, so it depends on what mood I'm into, what version I watch. But we were talking about that. And then he said, hey, I've got this project i've got these guys they're they've got a new business model they're offering me a million dollars if i bring them a great idea um uh i get final cut so let me bounce this idea off you can i get your professional movie i'm like yeah sure let's do it and so he bounced this movie off me and i gave him my notes and i had had sinister in my head for several years um and so it had been something that had come to me uh in a dream and the dream just stuck with me and i was like well how do i turn that into a story and i workshopped it over the years and just had this in my hip pocket and so i pitched him sinister and i pitched him a lot of what's on the page there's a few elements that were gone uh from that but mostly what was on the page um uh you know the the big thing about the pitch for that is the elevator pitches you know those uh 
found footage movies. When I asked that of Jason Blum, Jason Blum just looked across at me and said, yeah, I make them. And then I <laughs> followed up with, well, this is the movie about the guy that makes the pound that finds the footage. And that's where Jason Blum leans across the table and goes, tell me more. And Scott was like, all right. And so he's like, everybody pitches me once. Give me your pitch. And so I pitched him uh, the pitch. And it was, you know, essentially the structure that you've got there. The only big element that is different um, in the uh, uh, in the original pitch was that uh, in my original ending, when she's dragging the axe across the house, um, she opens a door and Bagul is there with the children and there's a projector set up and Bagul says, can we see it? Um, and that's how the original pitch ended. And it was great for a pitch, but while Scott and I were writing the script, we realized the ghoul should never speak like that makes, you know, but when he opens his mouth, he's not as scary. And so let's keep him entirely silent. Um, and so that was the biggest change from that. But I, I pitched him, you know, the, the whole element of a crime writer moving into a murder house, you know, uh, weird things start happening around the house, you know, um, uh, and then, you know, the big clincher that it's actually the kids, the discovery, it's too late. And um, uh, uh, the, the child paints the walls with the blood of, of their own family while filming. it. And uh, uh, and he just looked across and he said, holy shit, I want to make that movie. I know exactly who wants that movie. We have to make it. Uh, I want you to go home when you're done with Vegas. Go home. Write me a three to five page treatment register it with the WGA, send it to me. I'm going to take it out next week. Um, and then the hilarious part is that, you know, I ran into him the next day. He was playing cards in my, uh, in, in the casino in my hotel. And he goes, Oh, Hey, 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 I'm between, uh, uh, hands right now, but I don't want you to forget when you get home, I want you to write a three to five page treatment, register it with the WGA, send it to me and I'll take it out next week. It's like, okay, great. Yeah, cool. Uh, and the next day I fly home and I'm in bed for 20 minutes and the phone rings and my wife comes in and goes, it's Scott. I said, okay, I'll take it. And he goes, Hey man, I know you're probably Vegas, but I just want to remind you, uh, write a three to five page treatment, register it with the WGA and, uh, 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 send it to me and I'll take it out. And I was like, this motherfucker's serious. So I slept for 10 hours straight, woke up and wrote a five page treatment. And there's literally chunks of that treatment that are still in the finished film today. Like as in dialogue, um, you know, I had, I wrote a chunk of the, uh, the opening with the sheriff, uh, into the treatment as the setup for what's going on. Cause there's so much, um, there's so much exposition in that, in that one conversation and uh, yeah, chunks of that still exist in the script today. So that's, that's the night in the Mandalay Bay. <laughs> Man, there's a, uh, there's a hangover style comedy about someone who pitches the best horror movie ever conceived while five, six, seven white Russians deep the next morning has blown out saying we want to make it, but he can't remember a thing. I would, I would watch that movie. Um, <laughs> so can you tell me about the dream? Oh yeah, no. So um, when I went and saw the ring uh, and uh, I had been up for like 24 hours, um, I had, you know, had, I was working at a video store while I was um, uh, an early film critic. The first five years of me being a film critic were entirely working in a video store and were entirely unpaid. So I'm writing for Ain't It Cool News uh, and uh, uh, what would become Spill.com. Uh, and, uh, while I'm also, you know, working at a video store. And so <clears throat> this had all come together and my wife wanted to see a movie and we had been hearing great things about the ring. So it's like, okay, I'll go see a movie. I'll take a nap and then uh, I'll do my next work. And, uh, we saw the ring and it was fantastic. And we go home and I sleep for an hour and a half. And in that dream, 
I have in that sleep, I had a dream in which I go into my attic and there's a box uh, with a projector and a bunch of Super 8 films. And I spool up the projector and it's the opening shot of Sinister. And I woke up and that just haunted me. And for weeks, that image haunted me. This whole, this image of like this creepy projector and projecting a, a, a family hanging from a tree. And I was like, you know, if this scares me, uh, it's going to scare other people. So I need to figure out how does, you know, I, this has to be a, a, a story or a book or a film. Uh, so let's figure out how it, how it could be one. And what's the story here? Like, and then workshopping through, uh, you know, how, how do you get from point A to point B to, you know, uh, a, a scary ending. And, uh, uh, and so that began the process. That's really interesting. I, I was, I knew you'd tell me the starting point for the story and I was trying to anticipate what it might be. I mean, there's a really rich mythology to the film. There's, there's an incredible monster at the end of the maze for Ellison, but I'd have just as easily believed you if you said that it began with the character, because well, one thing I've noticed as a through line in your work, both like on screen and as a novelist, is before there's any sign of a genre element lifting it into the realm of horror or, or into fantasy, you set up these characters with interior lives that are so dramatic. You could almost skip the supernatural element altogether and play the rest of the 90 minutes out as a drama. I mean, so here you have an author whose waning reputation as a crime writer has led him to pull his family into a new town where his exploitative reputation precedes him. The police and neighbours are wary of him. His marriage is on the rocks. He's so fixated on returning to his professional past glories that, well, best case scenario, he's neglecting his family. Worst case scenario, he's putting them in danger. You can imagine that playing out as a drama without any need for something supernatural. Same is true of Doctor Strange. You have this arrogant surgeon who's forced to reevaluate his life after the instruments that give him that sense of greatness are crushed in a car accident. I can imagine that on, on the Criterion channel for two hours, no need for, for superpowers. Why is that an important foundation on which to start adding the crazy shit, whether that's yeah, superpowers in Doctor Strange's case or a child eating deity in this in this film? Um, you know, uh, it, it's different from genre to genre, but the key element is that I feel that the, the theory of my writing, at least, is that um, the greatest stories are when you're watching one really good story that you would watch on its own. And then it gets interrupted by an even better story um, because you you get you put these great characters out there and you hook the audience. And the more the audience engages with a character, the more they care about them. Uh, and the more they care about them, the more they get emotionally involved, invested in their fate. Um, and so in a horror movie, when you do that, the more scared the audience gets. When an audience cares about characters, they get scared. When an audience hates characters, it becomes catharsis and they feel joy. It's why there's a certain type of horror fan that loves watching Friday the 13th movies and slasher movies. And when you look at those, so many of those characters are deliberately awful characters. You know, they're annoying, they're obnoxious, they're doing terrible things. And then you enjoy watching them get an ax in the head. Um, that is, that is just, you, you're like, mm, get that asshole. Um, and that's, that is how you feel. But then when you really like when your real protagonist, the one, you know, the final girl um, uh, is is in danger. Now you're scared 
Now you're scared for that person because you come to care about that character versus the other characters you don't. And you get to have in certain in, in the best of like the Friday, the 13th or slasher films, you have that dichotomy. That's that's why Scream works. You care so much for that protagonist that you follow through multiple films. You're just always there with Sydney and you care for her. So you're always scared about her fate. But then there's so many people around that you kind of enjoy watching, get the, you know, get get murdered. And that is, you know, that that's the core to horror uh, in science fiction. It's it's very similar. You know, um, science fiction itself is mostly intentionally allegory. Um, you know, the one that isn't, you know, people will talk about space opera and space opera is essentially fantasy in space. Um, you know, it's fantasy with laser blasters uh, instead of magic swords. But in true in, in like core science fiction, especially hard sci fi, as it's called, um, it's allegory for, um, you know, what's going on in our lives now. Uh, and that is also a thing that you need to put the audience in and care about those characters and then care about how, you know, this weird dystopian future um, impacts or this weird utopian future impacts their decision in their lives. And so, um, you know, the core, the character being at the core of that story and being essential is, is it's the engine that drives the audience's desire to go further and further into this world that you're building for them. That makes sense. Yeah. And I should probably also ask at this point, were you consciously or subconsciously rebelling against anything when you, when you kind of started to delve into this? Because the previous decade in horror, as I remember, had been pretty heavy on like torture porn and a grittier type of horror in which the monster was mainly man and what we're capable of doing to each other. Did, did you want to write a movie that course corrected the culture kind of back to ghosts and the supernatural? Did you just see an opportunity to kind of do something that wasn't being done a lot at that time? Or did you just fucking love ghost stories, the supernatural? Well, I mean, there was a conscious rebellion. Uh, there are three movements of horror in in the aughts. Uh, or the naughties, depending on every, I kind of hate calling it the naughties because uh, it just sounds, yeah, it's, I call it the aughts, you know, <laughs> both are proper, uh, you, you know, in the early aughts from, you know, about 01 to 04, it was very, very J-horror driven. Like even, even the Americans were just remaking J-horror. And then, you know, as America was having this weird relationship with the Iraq war and 9-11, uh, what became known as torture porn uh, took over and it became this gritty raw kind of throwback to the 70s um, and everybody was kind of outdoing one another. Uh, and then I wish we could take credit for it, but really it's, you know, Oren Pelly and Jason Blum with Paranormal Activity, uh, you know, going back with the found footage genre and everybody thinks of that as just found footage, but they were telling a ghost story. They were telling, you know, it was a ghost story with a demon in it. It's a demon story, but it, it, it has the structure of a haunting. Um, and, uh, and then we started seeing a few things like that. And this was a reaction to all of that, um, you know, uh, but one of the things we absolutely did was me and Scott sat down before we wrote it and we wrote out a list of tropes we were not going to put in the movie. Here are things we are not going to do. Here's what we have seen done a dozen times all throughout the last decade, decade and a half. And we're not doing it. No mirror gags, no, um, uh, you, you know, no cat scares. We went through and just laid out all the stuff that really bored us in horror movies and said, let's not do that. And then that <laughs> left us with whenever we needed a scare. It's like, well, what do we do here? And then it was me and Scott trying to come up with things to, to fuck with each other, but trying to make it, you know, 
supernatural in its own way, even when it doesn't see, even when it feels like a cat scare at its real core. No, it's not a cat scare. It is like when you go back and rewatch Sinister, knowing what's going on, the box scene plays a very different way. Like, you know, it's weird when you first see it, but it's like, oh, it, we thought there was something crazy going on, but it's just this kid in a box. And you're like, wait, why is the kid in the box? And then you realize, oh, Bagul has been fucking with this family the whole time that's that's not an accident that that's there like he's trying to fuck with the family and get in their head like this is this is supernatural interaction and so we were trying to make sure everything played in that way uh and uh uh so yeah it was it was absolutely a rebellion against a lot of what was going on at the time and that was we were allowed to because we were playing with a three million dollar budget um you know we uh scott had final cut we knew that we were gonna make something that that was different and perhaps dangerous uh and possibly rejected by the mainstream uh but we wanted to do something really scary and and make our horror movie the thing that we we could be fine walking away from never having made another movie again and go but we made that and we're proud of that and so yeah it was absolutely a rebellion and this draft is titled found footage why'd that change and how did you end up with sinister well, uh, it was originally as it was in my head, like, as I had mentioned, it was around for years. It was in my head as super eight. Um, and that's <laughs> how I would pitch it. Yeah. And then uh, I couldn't do that. Uh, <laughs> and so I was trying to come up with something. Me and Scott were talking and, and then I realized, oh, found footage. And I pitched that to Scott. He goes, oh, it's perfect. And everybody loved it. And that was what we were going to release the movie as. And then after we shot the film, cause we, that was the shooting title um we uh uh we were looking at it and then somebody sent an email saying is found footage too much inside baseball like we know what a found footage movie is but does someone in iowa going to a horror movie you know you know once every two months do they know what found footage is and does it sound a little clunky to their ears and everyone's like oh yeah maybe and they're like let's come up with something else and so it was literally just emails back and forth of a dozen titles you know, uh, the house with the tree, the, uh, you know, the house at the end of the lane, you know, spook house, you know, just all the dumbest titles you've ever met, uh, heard. Uh, and someone sent a, uh, one of the suggestions was the sinister tree. And I just shot an email back going, what about sinister? Everyone went, Ooh, Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> now at the time, what nobody, like one of the things that frustrates me about Hollywood is, is oftentimes, Producers and, you know, execs won't tell you about other stuff they have in development. So we weren't aware that while we were doing that, they were making a film called Insidious. Um, and that we, for the rest of my life, I would have people confused saying, oh, so have you made anything? I've seen why I made this horror movie called Sinister. And then they would be like, oh, with the one with the red demon in the corner and the kid <laughs> in the mist. And it's like, no, no, no. The one about the, the, Oh, the footage in the attic. Oh, oh, okay. Yeah, I know that one. So everybody, it's people and, and people just do it all the time, uh, uh, mixing up insidious and, and sinister. So it's um uh uh it, it's been a <laughs> an albatross around my neck for <laughs> nine years now. I'm sure. But to um to dive into to the actual script, there's so much that happens in the first 10 pages. So first page, you've got well, that literal big starting point for you, that dream, that is the first page. Terrifying. You also have, by the 10th page, you've featured a mystery, a regret, a secret, a conflict, 
The mystery is a missing girl that the police sheriff mentions. There's all these allusions to Ellison's waning career. Why can't you just keep writing in our old house? Ashley, Ellison's daughter, asks her dad. I was going to have to write school textbooks to stay in our old house. I can't do that, he replies. There's a secret. Ellison lies to his wife about the house they've moved into. And the conflict is with a police officer who makes it very clear the townsfolk don't want them here. So you seem to work really hard to pack in as much dramatic potential for the story as possible, Cargill. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I, 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 I like density. Um, I, I don't like uh, to take my time with uh, uh, things. I mean, really what it comes down to is one of my favorite uh, literary tricks is I like to bury my exposition in conflict. Um, and that by having the audience experience two things at once, they're getting information, but they're experiencing the conflict. I mean, conflict is why we, we tell stories. We, we go for the conflict. Um, you know, uh, one of the things that's, uh, I, I'm obsessed with right now is the low conflict, um, uh, film and how they work because there's a whole new kind there's a subgenre of film that is just super low conflict. Um, you know, a lot of people refer to them as Hallmark movies, um, you know, cause Hallmark makes a bunch of them, you know, a lot of Christmas films, but when you look at them, they have almost no conflict to them. The conflict is always interior. It's always about someone choosing to have a better life and that what they had before isn't as good as what they're getting now. Um, and I'm, I'm fascinated by how that works because for some reason people like it when outside of that genre, people do not, um, people want conflict. And, uh, and so by taking that conflict, like there's a lot of exposition given in that conversation with uh, Senator Thompson, uh, the uh, uh, the sheriff, um, where it's essentially the sheriff explaining to the audience who this guy is. But because I framed it in a way that, you know, um, if the sheriff shows up, we get the overbearing small town sheriff. We've seen that trope before. That guy's always an asshole. Uh, and so that makes us feel like, oh, this character we've just met who's dealing with this guy and trying to be friendly with the, the local police who just keeps getting his balls busted. He is clearly, um, you know, in the right there. And I'm on his side because we as an audience don't like seeing heavy handed authority uh, putting their boot on the necks of, of people. What? The audience doesn't know at this point is the sheriff is 100% right and Ellison is 100% in the wrong. And they won't get that until their second viewing of the film. Um, and so uh, they're all of a sudden having this character explain our protagonist to him and but seeing it wreathed in that conflict. So it's not because how do you tell an audience that story. How do you tell an audience, hey, my character is a failing, uh, you know, once great uh, crime novelist and uh, and he's on his last legs in his last uh, um, his last case. Uh, and it is uh, uh, it's a really hard bit of it's a really hard bit of exposition to get in there. And the cop was just kind of perfect for it, uh, where because you, you, you the thing is, is when you wreath your um your exposition and conflict, it becomes invisible to the audience. It's information they're taking in, but they're taking it in as, Oh, I'm throwing jabs at you. Like, Oh yeah, no, your last two books sucked. Uh, and it's like, Oh, that's, that's cold, man. Going after a guy's career like that. But now we have that information buried in our head that this guy's last two books sucked. And that one of them actually got a guilty guy off. Um, 
And that is information that really is important to us. But we think is is kind of in this chess match when really, no, it's not a chess match at all. Um, it's it's just an expositional um, uh, array, like giving the audience all that information they need. And so I that's how I tend to do it. I like I like put, putting my uh, that information in that kind of format, because then, you know, we really kind of enjoy it. And uh, because it's it's uh, the in the in the author sphere, uh, there's a, a whole thing that we use when we talk about writing, which is called the as you know, Bob, uh, which is bad <laughs> exposition, which is here's a guy in the sci fi future going, well, as you know, Bob, when we uh, went to the moon in 2050 and established our first moon base, we started building robots up there. You know all of this, but the people listening to this conversation do not. Uh, and you want to kind of avoid that because that really just the audience is like, all right, all right, I'll get this, but get into the story that I came for. And if you can hide that around in little nuggets uh, around an otherwise uh, tight structure, the audience will just be drinking in that information and not thinking about the information because they're experiencing the film, but filing that information away. Hey, this is Al. Just jumping in to tell you about two of our great sponsors this week. First, guys, we need to talk about Cave Day. Cave Day is the world's most focused community. They lead group focus sessions every day on Zoom to help you get more done in less time. If you write screenplays, I probably don't need to tell you that revising scripts requires supreme focus. The best writers know they need to shut out distractions and harness everything they've got to overcome obstacles, both internal and external. Cave Day is perfect for helping with that. Think of it like a group fitness class, but for your work. A trained guide leads check-ins, deep work sprints and energising breaks. Members report they get two and a half times more done with Cave Day's science-backed method. Join the world's most focused community and work alongside Emmy and Oscar-winning writers. Script Apart listeners can get a seven-day trial and 50% off their first month by using the promo code SCRIPTAPART, that's all caps, at checkout. Head to caveday.org to get involved. That's caveday.org. Support for today's episode of Script Apart also comes from We Screenplay. Making progress on your screenplay can be an incredibly isolating experience. You've completed a draft, but what next? That's where We Screenplay comes in. Not only does We Screenplay have amazing free resources, like virtual events where your questions are answered by Hollywood's leading professionals, they're also the industry's number one script coverage service. Looking for notes on your short script, TV pilot or feature film? With incredible 72-hour turnaround, format-specific feedback that's tailored to your specific goals, and a price that no one else can come close to, We Screenplay coverage is used by thousands of writers in every phase of their career, from folks writing their first script all the way to Oscar winners and longtime producers. So if your script is all ready to go, check out one of We Screenplay's labs, where dozens of writers have been repped, optioned, and staffed as a direct result of the real-life industry meetings, hands-on workshops, and once-in-a-lifetime learning opportunities that We Screenplay has to offer. Don't stay stuck. We Screenplay are here to help. Check out We Screenplay by visiting wescreenplay.com or clicking the link in today's show notes. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. One thing that occurred to me when reading the script is, it, I mean, we talked earlier about tropes. In, in horror movies, you're often there screaming, why don't you leave? Extract yourself from this clearly terrible situation, please, I beg of you. But the desperation that you instill into Ellison as this guy whose career is fading makes it plausible for him to stay, to go into the attic, to follow the bumps in the night when it's so clearly a bad idea. Was was that one of the reasons why you made him that way, why you gave him 
uh, the sort of stage in the in his career that he's at. One hundred percent. That's uh, you know, um, we had the core idea. You know, I had the core idea of what Sinister was, and then I asked myself, who stays in that house? Like who does? Because the the big question is is what is the most interesting character that can find this box? And not just hand it over to the police. Who doesn't hand the box over to the police? Because almost anyone in their right mind would hand that box over to the police. I have just found crime films. Like this is a police matter. This isn't my matter. So who who would stand to do it? And the answer is someone who benefits. Well, who would stand to benefit? Well, someone investigating that. Well, why would someone investigating that not get the help of police? Well, the local police aren't happy that they're there. Well, why not? Well, because this character is not particularly good at his job. And in fact, that's the one of the big gags of the movie is the fact that the bumbling deputy is actually a significantly better investigator <laughs> than the investigator he's helping. Like he figures it all out when he's given half the information, um, whereas Ellison has it all there and can't put it together because he's not a great investigator. And you see over the course of him investigating this mystery, why he bumbled his way through the last two. And I was like, that's an interesting character. And that all kind of came together. Like the, the, the deputy thing came a little later in the writing process where Scott was like, we need a cipher here. We need a character who can bounce off Ellison and that Ellison can talk out loud to. And I said, well, I don't want it to be a deputy Dewey situation. And, you know, just the bumbling deputies like, so don't write that, write something better. And so I was like, well, what's better than that? And I was like, Ooh, Ooh, the starstruck deputy, the deputy that, that, seems bumbling, but just because he's like, why don't you meet celebrities where, you know, most people have their brain vanishes because they're like, oh my God, I can't believe I'm in the same room with you. I've read all your books. Oh my God, this is amazing. Oh, this is exactly as I dreamed it was. You've got yarn connecting things on a board and isn't that exciting? And so you kind of build that character up and then it was like, oh, but what if he actually is a sane, rational guy who is actually a really good investigator and uh, and playing that as against the type of Ellison. And in doing that forced us to sharpen Ellison even more and make him even more in an underlying sense. The audience thinks he's a good investigator by figuring out the mystery. But by the end, we figure out he's not that great at all, actually. And we've just been going along with him and not putting the pieces together ourselves. As much as it's a movie about things going bump in the night, it's also a film about falling down the rabbit hole of professional obsession and the detachment that that can bring from your family. Was was that something you and Scott were able to bring to the page from personal experience at all? Because, well, I'd be curious to know, as you were writing Ellison, how much this guy was a vehicle for your fears. I mean, writing is a time-consuming thing. I'm guessing that you've stood on that brink the way that I have of, of sort of neglecting people that you care for, not being around for people. Was there a degree um, of autobiography? Um, it, it's, it is and it isn't. It was definitely, I mean, our core is that's our fear. The thing is, is Scott and I are both family men. We both love our families very much. Um, and uh, our, our family is the centerpiece of our life. Um, as I've told my wife, you know, uh, if I had to choose between writing and her, I'd live in a trailer and work in, you know, work retail and live with her because she's the best thing that ever happened in my life. Uh, writing is the gravy in my life. Um, uh, she's the meat. Uh, and so that really was, but it was the fear of that we would become Ellison. Ellison was the guy we didn't want to become, the guy so chasing. Um, his career after failure, after failure, that we lose the thing that's most important to us, our family, because we we were chasing this illusory thing. Because the thing about fame is fame 
you know, fame is ephemeral. It's not a tangible thing. You know, um, there's a reason why uh, media is rife with where are they now? Uh, because we're constantly fed uh, a stream of people who are famous and who we are told are important because they're trying to sell us a product and then fade away. And then we're like, well, what happened to that person? And what happened to that person? And so you can't really chase it and maintain it your whole life. No one does. There are very few people that actually have some level of fame over the course of their careers, uh, but there's so few and far between. There is no, there's no magical way to do it. So most people end up destroying themselves if they chase that. And that, that was the fear that we wanted to avoid is we never wanted to be those people. And so he is the embodiment of our fears because that's what you got to do with horror is with horror. You've got to put your own fears in here. You've got to put the fears that people suffer even subconsciously. I mean, the subconscious fear at the base level of sinister, when you break it down is a parent's fear uh, that what their kids are watching will turn them into something evil, uh, will do something wrong. That media is going to corrupt your children. Um, that's something a lot of parents have a fear with. And we turn that into a movie. Uh, we turn that into media <clears throat> to corrupt their children with. Um, <laughs> and, uh, uh, so yeah, that, that, that was very much at the forefront of our mind while we were, were writing this. Ellison discovers this mysterious box in the attic filled with these incredibly creepy home movies that will spend much of the movie kind of trawling for clues as this ominous threat closes in on him and his family. Can you tell me about the evolution of these Super 8 killings as, as the device that's going to drive the plot in Sinister? I mean, that comes from the dream. Like that's, you know, it, it was, how do I make that dream? How do I, what's the most interesting story that contains that box? I mean, that's the, <clears throat> that's the core of writing is you've always got to ask yourself, what's the most interesting blank here? Uh, you know, what have we not seen before? What have we seen before, but not in this way? Uh, what, what, because people are always looking for new, but they're always looking for new wrapped around the familiar. You know, you uh, you can take a familiar structure and layer it with new things, or you can take a new structure and layer it with familiar things. But if you take a new structure and new things, audiences don't know how to process it. And so it's always about asking yourself, how do I get this thing? And in this case, this horrifying dream with this horrifying image in it into a horror film and make that horror film itself feel like it is as intrinsic to uh, why it exists as um, that image is, you know, you know, you've done your job when people can't tell if you started with the character or you started with the plot. And in this case, I started with the opening image and I started with the mechanics of it. Um, you know, the mechanics of Sinister are what this was built around. And then it was, well, who's the most interesting person to find that box? And then what's the most interesting story to tell with that? And then working back and forth as the, you know, push and shove until you come up with a story that no one knows where you started. They just know that it's all important. And, and so that's, that's where you, that's, that's how you do that kind of a thing. And so in this case, it really just did come from that nightmare and me trying to make that into uh, a film. One of the home movies in this draft is different. It's set in a snowstorm. Can you tell me uh, why that came out? Was it a production reason? Yeah, it was entirely a production reason. It was, you know, we had, um, you know, as films do, had problems on set and we we ran into a small budget snag because of uh, some internal problems. And we were like, we need to cut a day or two. Like, what do we do? And somebody said, what if we cut one of the kids? 
what if we, you know, just remove one of the, we had already hired an actress. We, you know, we're already ready to have her in on stuff. Uh, we had plotted out into the schedule, you know, the, the times to shoot uh, both the, the, the film and uh, um, you know, have uh, her special scenes in the movie. You know, the sad thing is losing that we lost uh, a scene that I was, I felt was just really important. Um, uh, you know, there was a, I knew the type of movie we were making. And again, this was very much a rebellion against a lot of things. And I knew that there was going to be a criticism that a lot of this was creeping around in the dark. So I wrote a scene in which this, you know, Ellison's hearing something in the kitchen. He goes in. We see the shadow of this girl standing there in the kitchen. He flips on the light. And she's gone. And that's the, you know, um, you know, the, these these things aren't going to be seen in the light and turning on the light is of no use whatsoever. Uh, but exposing it to light. Sure enough, when we had to cut um, uh, the Christmas morning uh, film, we uh, we ended up having to lose that scene as well because it, it involved that actress. Um, and uh, unfortunately, then the big joke right after the film's release was that, you know, of course this movie's scary. Nobody will turn the lights on. Apparently none of the lights work in the house. Now, if you, when you, <laughs> people would go back and rewatch the movie thinking that, and then see the actual lights on in the background that no, he's walking through a dim house most of the time, but we're shooting it in such a way that it feels like he's walking through the dark. Uh, and that criticism stopped happening a couple of years back where people in revisiting just like, Oh wait, no, that, that joke doesn't actually work. It just, seemed to work after we saw the movie once. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it's, I, I, I missed that scene. In fact, I, I think that scene is in Sinister too. Cause I know that movie got moved over to Sinister too. I mean, Ellison's, you know, his career is not going great. It makes sense. He would be trying to save money on electricity, but that's another thing. <laughs> um, so we haven't talked about Bagul, the eater of children as, as Ellison sort of watches these super eight home movies, we start to see, we first see during the scene with the pool killing, we see a ghostly figure in the water. You start to tease out this character and the mythology that's kind of at work here. Let's have a Bugul discussion. How did you arrive at that character? His look, the, the sort of mythology you grant him, his method of taking souls. Was, was there a ton of research involved into the occult? Yes. Uh, I'm a big research uh, hound. I'm sitting right next to my research shelf, which is just all books on folklore and uh, symbology and writing. And, you know, it's uh, 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 a wealth of stuff that I draw from for a bunch of my my work. And, uh, you know, Scott and I, uh, we had a big argument um, uh, while writing this because for me, Bagul was a demon. And Scott was like, demons don't work like that. And I'm like, demons work however they want. Like, it depends on which mythology you're talking about. And of course, Scott's concept of demons is very rooted in a, a core hard Catholicism. Uh, he's not Catholic, but his, his, it, you know, he, he's made a couple of exorcism films. He's deeply knowledgeable at that, about that. And his opinion was people think demons work a certain way. And I'm like, you know, I've watched, the crappiest of crap for, you know, 40 years of my life. And I happen to know that people uh, um, uh, think demons are whatever we want a demon to be. Like there are no real rules for demons. And he's like, well, I don't want it to be a demon. And it's like, well, uh, what, you know, what is it then? And he goes, well, I don't care. It can be a deity. It can be a, some, a demigod. It can be whatever you want it to be. It's not a demon. And I said, oh, like an ancient Babylonian deity. And he was like, yeah. I was like, oh, 
Oh, that sounds cool. I can do that. Yeah. So I then sat down and spent a week reading several books on Babylonian mythology and, um, you know, figuring out what the core elements in Babylonian mythology is because Babylonian mythology is very interesting in that a lot of it kind of bled into what would become Judaism and Christianity, uh, that, that a lot of those beliefs and a lot of those stories, um, became, uh, early part of the canon. Um, and some of it is still canon today. And, uh, uh, so, uh, you know, I kind of went through that and then was like, oh, well, you know, here's this concept of, you know, uh, an eater of people. And here's this concept of, you know, an art God. And here's these various things. And I found the threads that were common through a lot of these myths. And <clears throat> I then wove together the idea of Bagul from that, taking those common threads of here's what makes up a Babylonian ancient deity. Um and then making sure that that all kind of stuck together and then put it into this thing of like, oh, the eater of children, like that's, you know, the consumption of the souls. And that then built into an internal mythology that we never say out loud in any of the movies, but that exists in me and Scott's head of here's how this functions. Here's how he works. Here's here's what's going on so that we would always, you know, um, play by those rules. And uh, yeah. And then the, the look of him came from Scott does a lot of visual research and he was going through um, various art boards, you know, boards where people post, you know, their art up um, and uh, found this image and just loved this image. And he showed it to me and he's like, what do you think? And I'm like, oh, that's creepy as hell. And he goes, well, I'm going to, I'm going to option it. And so he reached out to the artist optioned the, the image from them. And then we started building out, uh, from there. And, uh, we had, uh, you know, um, character artists just designing multiple versions because the, in the, as it says in that original script, you know, he's described as a fucked up Willy Wonka. And so we tried him with a top hat and a cape and various, you know, uh, flourishes like that. And it just didn't work. Um, but you know, we ultimately settled on this image that really kind of creeped people out. And, uh, um, and it was all through working through with the, the, um, design team and then the makeup effects team. And then we ended up with the ghoul's look. And the Babadook came and stole the, uh, fucked up Willy Wonka vibe a few years later. Dude, uh, the minute I saw the Babadook, I'm like, that's what what was in my head. (laughs) And, 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 and the Babadook fucking nailed it and was like, oh shit, that's fucking great. Um, and I loved it, but it was like, that was the image. That was what was in my head was that. Um, yeah, very much. That was when I saw that at Fantastic Fest, I, I kind of flipped my lid, not in a bad way, but like, you know, oh my God, literally somebody captured that thing that was in my head that I wasn't able to get out for Sinister. Um, let's talk about the ending, Cargill. I'll make you famous, daddy. Was there another fate for poor Ellison or, you know, why was it only right for, for that character to die? Uh, because that was what was scary. You know, um, this, you know, again, this was a reaction of what was going on at the time. And um, we wanted to tell a really deeply scary horror story where the family doesn't get away. The thing is, is this guy has transgressed. And this guy has transgressed multiple times. There are multiple times over the course of the story where he is able to stop what is going on and he chooses not to, and he has gone too far. And, you know, what the underlying theme of the film, it's about the disintegration of the American family, you know, and the family is disintegrated. He has destroyed the family. 
Um, and he did it long before. And, and you can see it in the choices he's made. And he has all sorts of outs along the way. And he never takes them. He doesn't take it until it's too late until he uh, final confirmation. This is wrong. This thing is after us. And we're just going to leave because now I care about my family. Um, and it's too late. Uh, the I'm going to make you famous, daddy. Uh, that was really one of those moments of inspiration where it just came to me. And I was on the phone with Scott and I said, I have the dumbest idea for the, the final thing she says. And he goes, all right, hit me. And I tell him and he goes, that's not dumb. That's great. We're doing that. Oh, my God. Are you kidding me? You thought that was dumb? I was like, ah, I didn't know. And what we've come what I've come to find is often the best ideas are the ones that you question yourself where you really like it, but you don't know if it's going to work. And then you run, you have to run that by a couple of people. And when they see that it works, that's the crazy idea that nobody else has done before. And, uh, but you're just not sure because you don't have a touchstone. You don't know because you haven't seen somebody else do that. And that final confirmation of the daughter giving the father what he always wanted, but in the worst possible way is kind of a monkey's paw kind of an ending that definitely ties in with the way Bagul operates. And so it just all felt right. As we discussed at the top of the show, this was a film that really found an audience and became this cult sensation thrusting you and Scott into the spotlight as storytellers. One of the projects that, of course, followed was Doctor Strange, the Marvel movie. I love that film. I've got a question here from one of our Patreon supporters who, who was keen to know something about it. Johnny Messias wanted to ask, for a job like Doctor Strange, how do you find a balance between what you'd like to write and see on screen versus the structures and playbook that Marvel already have in place for you as part of their universe? I mean, the, the answer is like when we made Doctor Strange, uh, Marvel was in a very interesting place in their career and they were the, the phase three, they were experimenting. And um, so when we made Doctor Strange, they were not trying to make a movie that was tied into the rest of the Marvel Universe. In fact, they told us explicitly, do not take plot points that are tied into anything that's come before. Do not put references in. We will we will at tor towards the end of this process weave in Marvelisms into this movie. Just tell a great movie. So we were unshackled. We were, you know, the thing that we were bound into was telling a Doctor Strange story, which is why we got into it the whole uh, to begin with. So, um, yeah, no, we were entirely unshackled in that way. I don't know how how it's working now, if, if that has gone away, if there's, you know, because I do know that they are building much more complicated structures than they were in in phase three. Uh, but at that time, uh, it was it was very easy. Um, it was, you know, uh, them always trying to make the best uh, story that they could. In fact, you know, in the concept of what you're talking about uh, in this podcast, when Scott and I went to audition for Dr. Strange, um, we wrote a 15 page treatment on what we thought a Dr. Strange movie would be. And there was a scene in there that is what got Scott the job where they just flipped for that scene. And they're like, oh, my God, we got to put that in the movie. That's a Doctor Strange movie. Um, and that scene with modifications made it all the way to the final movie. And that's the ER battle uh, where Doctor Strange is being operated on and is having a fight in the astral plane right over his own body as he's overseeing his own surgery. And they're like, oh, my God, that's a Doctor Strange. That's that is everything. It's Doctor. <laughs> it's strange. It's the whole kit and caboodle. Um, so, you know, I mean, from the get go, before we even had the job, we were coming up with stuff we wanted to see that got onto the screen. So it was it was a joy of a process. There is a Doctor Strange sequel in the works at the minute. But um, of course, 
you and Scott aren't working on it. Instead, you've been busy with a film called The Black Phone, which I believe you've just finished production on. What can you tell me about that project? Uh, well, I mean, essentially, uh, there was a moment where Scott and I were having a conversation. We were at this great uh, film festival. We were jurists at Cinepocalypse in Chicago. And we were just having a great night sitting up, having some whiskey, talking things. And he just kind of pitched me something. And he was just like, you know, I really kind of want to make a movie about childhood and about my childhood and, you know, how rough it was. And if I were to take $500,000 and shoot like a 16 millimeter film about childhood, kind of like my 400 blows, would you write that with me? Would you want to work on something like that? And I was like, hell yeah, of course I would. But you know, you and I, every few years talk about Joe Hill's The Black Phone and The Black Phone is just this great short story. But the problem is it's all second act with like a five minute third act. Like we have to build so much about who the character is, who his sister is. Like, what if we took that story and we did that film about childhood that you're talking about. And Scott just fell in love with that idea. I was like, well, yeah. And I, I called up Joe Hill because uh, we're friends. Um, we become friends over the years. And we, in fact, we're, uh, we, whenever we have books that come out together, we, we share an editor and the editor puts us on book tours together. Um, and a wonderful human being. And I love him so much. And, uh, uh, so much of my career has now become tied into him. Uh, my last book was a result of sitting uh, over beers with him and him telling me that it's my next book, that it's not some novella that I'll write someday. That's your next book. Uh, and uh, I just uh, called him up and said, uh, you know, well, I mean, I emailed, emailed him up. We both hate phones. Um, <laughs> we just do. And I was like, hey, what's up with Black Phone? And he's like, oh, um, it's available. Do you, do you want it? And I said, yeah, me and Scott have an idea. And he's like, all right, I'll give you the friend rate. And um, so we optioned the story and uh, we wrote the script and uh, we're really, really, really proud of it. It's uh, it's we just all the pieces fell into place on that. We got all the right cast. Uh, Ethan Hawk came in to play our heavy. Uh, we got these incredible kids who are just amazing. Um, and it's a, it's a very dark horror film about, um, the resiliency of youth and about, you know, the stuff that we go through that forges the adults that we become and how we're given the choice to take that trauma and become stronger because of it or become defined by it. Uh, and it's about a kid that gets kidnapped um, and thrown into a killer's basement. And there's a disconnected phone in the basement. And on the first night he's there, the phone rings. Um, and, uh, it's not, uh, it's not unsupernatural what is on the other end of that phone. And it's, uh, it's a spooky film. It's, uh, uh, a film that we're just really proud of how it came out. So, uh, I cannot wait for people to see this movie. You and me both. Um, is there anything else in the pipeline that you're able to talk about Cargill? Um, me and Scott co-wrote something with, uh, Timo Schwento, um, uh, it's, uh, we're really proud of that. I can't, we can't even talk about the, like, we, we weren't even aware we were going to talk about it. And Timo got so excited that he dropped, uh, the cover page on Instagram and, I was gonna uh, say, yeah, I saw that. Yeah. And, uh, so people are like, well, what's the genre? And like, we're not telling you, we're not letting anybody know yet. We're, we're still tinkering, but, uh, but really excited to work on that. Uh, Scott and I have a couple other things in the pipeline that we've been working on, uh, but that we can't talk about. Um, because Hollywood is going to Hollywood. Uh, but I've got a lot of, we got a lot of things going on, a lot of irons in the fire. Um, oh, we've also, I mean, it's been mentioned, you know, we, uh, we've got a TV deal over at Blumhouse. Uh, we're producing a, um, 
uh, a show that we've sold to Paramount uh, called Grace that we think is really cool. Um, and then uh, Scott and I sold a thing called Midnight Radio to to Blumhouse uh, that we we're, we can't talk about details yet, but that is a really cool horror show. Wow, sounds like an exciting few years ahead. And of course, it all began with Sinister. Cargill, thank you so much for coming on Script Apart. This has been an absolute blast. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to Script Apart, hosted by me, Al Horner, produced by Camille Demek. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time.